The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. Thank you all uh, for joining us this evening. Um, we are here with a, a group of distinguished speakers, really to talk about you know where we are on this um, you know, on this mission to, to cure diabetes. Uh, I'm Jorge Conde, and tonight I am joined by my uh, uh, general partner, partner, Benita Argawala. Um, and I'm particularly pleased to welcome today the distinguished group that is going, joining us. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce them in order, and then I thought we could kick off the discussion. Um, so uh, first, uh, welcome to Aaron Kowalski, who is the CEO of JDRF. Uh, for folks that may not be familiar with JDRF, uh, it, JDRF is the global leader in type 1 diabetes research and advocacy. Uh, Dr. Kowalski drives strategies to accelerate progress towards cures and turn breakthroughs into technologies and therapies that help people stay healthy. Uh, his scientific expertise, his personal experience of living with type 1 diabetes for over 35 years, and his ability to engage the type 1 diabetes community uniquely enable him to advocate. JDRF's mission to cure, prevent, and treat type 1 diabetes and its complications. Uh, next up, we have Doug Melton, who is the co-director and founder of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Uh, he was a scientific founder of a long list of incredible companies, uh, Gilead, Hyperion, Curis, and Sema Therapeutics, which is now uh, part of Vertex. Uh, he's also the Xander University professor at Harvard Medical School and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, um, and an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Uh, important to note that in recognition of his research and advocacy for human embryonic stem cell research, he was chosen as the Scientific American Policy Leader of the Year in 2007, and has twice been named as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. And then, uh, we also have fortunate to have Karen Jordan joining us. Uh, Karen became involved with JDRF when her daughter, Allie, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 2008. Uh, she's a member of the International Board of Directors of JDRF, is chair of the Research Committee, and serves on the Audit and Risk Committee. Uh, she also serves on the Type 1 Diabetes Fund Board, and she's a member of the Joint Steering Committee for JDRF Northern California Center of Excellence at Stanford and UCSF. And she's the inaugural recipient of JDRF's John Brady Award for Innovation. Um, so let's get started, um, if we could. Um, and I thought one good one good place to start is um, with an overview of diabetes. Um, you know, what what's a good uh, sort of simple way that we can introduce some of the key differences between type one and type two diabetes? And I think it's an importantly it's important context to set up front because, you know, the data in terms of where we are uh, with respect to fighting diabetes is pretty daunting. Um, nearly one in seven American adults now has diabetes, uh, which is one of the highest rates on record, uh, according to some uh, recent studies uh, that were re released. So maybe, Aaron, can you give us a brief overview of the disease spectrum that is diabetes, type 1 versus type 2? and broadly how diabetes is managed today. Sure, and I'm gonna throw a grenade right out of the gate. I don't believe there is um, just type one and type two, and we know there, 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 there's not type one and just, just type one and type two. There are a variety of different forms of diabetes, but even the terms type one and type two, I think will be antiquated soon, if not already. But at the very elemental level, you know, diabetes is defined by high blood sugar. High blood sugar is very, very bad for your body. Uh, we know it causes terrible complications like blindness and kidney disease and nerve damage. And you can get there in, in, in a, a number of different ways that is high blood sugar. So the definitions of type 1 at the, the most elemental level versus type 2 are type 1 is an autoimmune form of diabetes and type 2 is a metabolic form of the disease. Type 1 people, their bodies uh, attack the cells that make insulin Without insulin, you die. So uh, if I were born before the early 1920s, I, <laughs> I would have died when I was 13 years old, or if not before, and I have a brother 
who was diagnosed at three. So in the history, uh, who, who, who would also have died? In the history of man, uh, there's only been a tiny window that we could live, which is why the Nobel Prize, multiple Nobel Prizes were given for the discovery of insulin. Type 2 diabetes um, defined by, you know, again, a very uh, generically, the inability to use insulin well. So many people initially upon diagnosis of type 2 uh, uh, have plenty of insulin production. The insulin is just not being um, uh, used well uh, metabolically. And of course, uh, uh, that's exacerbated by factors such as weight. But what we know now, just to kind of go back to that grenade, is there there is a continuum here. And type 2 people become type 1-like over time. They require insulin. There are 1.6 million type 1 people in the United States. There are 7 million people on insulin. Um, there's genetic diabetes. There's gestational diabetes. Um so the, the beauty of what we're, we'll talk about today is the work that Doug is doing, the, 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 the device work that people are interested in, can help a lot of people. It doesn't really always matter if you're type 1 or type 2. Um, so to, to your latter question, the, the treatments, uh, gosh, we have come such a long way since my brother was diagnosed. When he was diagnosed, there was urine testing of glucose and two shots of animal insulin a day. Uh, when I moved to New Jersey, we had a neighbor across the street who was completely blinded by type 1 in her early 20s. And here he and I are uh, many years later, and we're knock on wood, both very healthy, fortunately, um, and wearing automated insulin delivery systems and wearing continuous glucose monitors. And uh, the transformation of treatment has been tremendous. Hey, Aaron, can I jump on that grenade you threw out um, really quickly? Mm -hmm. um, so if we move to a world where there's type N diabetes uh, instead of type 1 and 2 uh, specifically, um, do, we get to a, do we ever get to a point you think where diabetes is characterized uh, in, in, in a similar way to the way cancers are now characterized where it's, you know, it's identified by the, you know, to call it the driver mutation in, in, in the case of cancer? Is there going to be a different way of thinking about how we subtype diabetes in future where it gets closer to these N of one type uh, situations? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look at just, for example, genetic diabetes right now, which for, again, for listeners who may not be so familiar, these are, you know, type one diabetes, cl classical autoimmune diabetes, we call polygenic. There's multiple genes that are involved. Genetic diabetes are people who have a mutation, a single gene mutation that, that causes the diabetes. For example, I have friends who have an insulin mutation. Uh, they were diagnosed in their, before they were one year old because they were essentially born with diabetes. The route to a treatment for them, like a stem cell treatment, may be easier than the pathway for somebody like me because they don't have autoimmunity. And, you know, this is something when I look at kind of the CGM space, for example, I've been arguing to the insulin manufacturers and the, the diabetes drug manufacturers that they are crazy not to be using CGM data to more uh, uh, quickly identify the metabolic patterns in people. And now we're seeing this, of course, move into even people without diabetes and get the right drug to the right person at the right time. Because there are multiple ways that type 2 people get to, to, to their disease. So absolutely no doubt, and we are just on the cusp of a, a transformation in this space. I think that's really well said. But back to Jorge's question, I think it is valid to say there are a couple of uh, boxes or partitions one could use. One is, as Aaron said, the people who need insulin to stay alive. And the other is that there are some types of diabetes that can be prevented or treated by changes in diet and exercise. That is not true for the people who are now dependent on insulin, the type 1 diabetics. And I, I actually just wanted to add that insulin is not a cure, for, particularly for those who are dependent on insulin, as Doug was saying. And it actually is, I don't actually know of any other drug that is lethal if um, given the wrong dose, and it is up to the patient to decide the proper dose every single time exogenous insulin is delivered. 
This does speak to Aaron's point, though, that the advances have been really impressive. And it's an exciting time for diabetes because with these closed loop systems, um, it's become much easier for patients to have an insulin pump and a continuous glucose monitor. But, you know, as you said, Karen, nevertheless, that patient is thinking about their diabetes every day, every hour. You know, what can I eat? Is my pump working? Do I have the right insulin? Have I, is my continuous glucose monitor working? But I think thanks in large part to the JDRF, it's really an exciting time because it's no longer, no one now says, well, if you're diabetic, don't worry, you'll just take insulin. Everyone now realizes that it's not a cure, as you said, Karen, and that there are prospects for treating it, I dare say even curing it because of advances in biomedicine. I think um, one way in which type 1 and type 2 diabetes may converge, Aaron, to your point that maybe they're not quite as dichotomous as we've made them out to be, maybe in the development of therapies that, you know, potentially stem cell therapies that are that have therapeutic benefit in both settings. But I did just want to come back to one point about, is it possible that really type 2 diabetes or, or even type 1 diabetes kind of end up being this genetically defined collection of N of 1 or rare, you know, or rare, rare genetic variants? My PhD advisor, David Altshuler, would shoot me if I didn't say something here. But <laughs> we did spend 10 years more. His lab spent decades studying this question. And I do want to note that, you know, unfortunately, we didn't find that in the genetic studies. So we are, we do have this perplexing challenge, I think, afflicting both the type 1 and type 2 diabetes fields, which is that most people with the disease don't end up having a targetable genetic mutation. And that's part of what makes, or a private genetic mutation or a single genetic mutation that's contributing to the cause of disease. It is the case as you noted, Aaron, that there are shared genetic risk factors and type 1 diabetes risk alleles are enriched among type 2 diabetics as well. There's lots of reasons to think there is a bit of a spectrum, but one of the things that makes therapeutics so hard in diabetes is that people are not um, dividing themselves into clean genetic categories. And in fact, each person with a disease with a diabetes likely has thousands of um genetic alleles contributing to that state. Yeah, I guess, Vanita, the thing I would say, and I'm a, I'm a very simple thinker, and I, and this is why I like stem cell, this is why I, I in my career at JDRF, spent a lot of time on devices, is you can start to create buckets, as Doug said. And, you know, a closed-loop system can help a lot of people in a big bucket. Stem cell, you know, arguably, stem cell will not be a quote-unquote cure to type 1 in the sense that you know, again, if you're a traditional autoimmune-driven type 1 person, stem cells not fixing that underlying problem, but it is restoring normal blood sugar, and I'm not going to go blind, and I don't have to take insulin anymore. So, you know, you can start to create big buckets, and I think at least in the, the nearer term, it makes me absolutely bananas that we're treating type 2 people, for example, as one big bucket with like the world's most simple algorithm, you know, first do diet and exercise, and then do this, and then do this, instead of slapping a CGM on them and saying, you know what, it's a fasting glucose problem, or it's a lack of insulin production problem, and getting more specific. So yes, there will be big buckets, but gosh, couldn't we be a little bit smarter? I mean, it's 2021. Totally agree. Totally agree. Love that perspective. It's a way it's a to combat point. the genetic heterogeneity is find find a different axis on which to group um, diverse patients. Totally agree. Yeah, and then that reminds one that another, since I do like to put things in buckets, is to think about prevention as one category, which is something I don't think much about, and cures in the other, because uh, it's quite different scientific approaches that you might take to those two things. If you're trying to prevent the disease or if you're trying to cure it, in people that already have it. Doug, are there oh, two yeah. more buckets in in that in that sort of um, uh, continuum? So on the one hand is prevent, on the other one is cure. In the middle, is there sort of some uh, you know a spectrum of you know treat and manage? And well, there's, there's certainly delaying it as as the JDRF has supported these trials of using antibodies to to delay the disease. Um, there's a company called Prevention, which is active in that area. 
I don't know if that should count as a third bucket, but it doesn't prevent the disease. It just delays the time at which the person becomes insulin dependent. That might sound trivial, but that's a pretty big deal if mm-hmm. you're a parent of a young child. But, and, but absolutely and, treat and manage are, are big areas where you can affect the course of the disease um, for some period of time. And, and we always say we like to you know, get people to be as healthy as they can until the cures are available. Yeah, I think, Orke, I, I can't stress enough the importance of better treatment options until we get to stem, th- stem cell therapies or what we call disease-modifying therapies. Um, the evolution, and you, you've brought up automated insulin delivery closed-loop systems, I mean, the transformation I've seen here has been game-changing. I mean, my life is demonstrably better because of these systems, as is my brother's and many people that I speak to. And as Karen pointed out, dosing insulin is a stressful, dangerous uh, daily uh, task that people with type 1 diabetes live with. If we can lift some of that burden off their shoulders and make their lives easier and healthier until there are uh, biological approaches, that is a very, very important step in my mind. I might try an analogy that the improvements in insulin delivery and monitoring cannot be underestimated. And these are like, in my lifetime, improving the gas mileages that we get in cars, going from like when I was young, probably 15 miles per gallon to now up to 50. And those are really significant. But I like to think of stem cells as like the electric car, a completely different thing. Um, You're giving the patient the capacity to make his or her own insulin you're no longer worried about continuous glucose monitoring. And so while I'm a huge supporter and completely agree with Aaron that the closed-loop systems should be continually advanced because in the short term, that's the best hope. But I'm like, um, what would I say? I'm like a Pied Piper for stem cell technologies. I think that is a natural cure where you're giving the patient cells that can both read their blood sugar levels and squirt out just the right amount of insulin And this has gone so far in the last couple of decades that I'm extremely hopeful that that's the best path forward. I remember when I was um, just starting out working in the industry, the 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 big the big great hope was the the closed loop, uh, you know, artificial pancreas, uh, you know, system, Um, and that took a really long time uh, to get there um, uh, in terms of it, you know transforming the lives of, of folks, as, as you pointed out, are the stem cell therapies on a near-term time horizon, or is this something that is, you know, a generation out? And the reason why I ask that question is just, you know, if we had to prioritize where to invest resources, um, and I'm sure you folks at JDRF think about this very actively, is how much do we lean into sort of the, the device-driven solutions, um, like a closed-loop system, versus leaning into the cell therapies um, that may be further off but are, going, are, are more likely to have a more transformative effect in the longer term. Like, How do we prioritize where to spend our time, resources, and energy today? Uh, I can weigh in. This is Aaron and uh, Doug and I. I imagine we'll be fairly aligned on this. Doug can comment a little bit better than I can on, on timeframes. But you know, if you look at artificial pancreas, and I spent my early career, a lot of my early career at JDRF on artificial pancreas, and I'll just give you some history here. Um, you know, Al Mann, who I spent a lot of time with, founder of Minimed, he believed that a closed loop system could only be implantable. And he and I argued about this quite a bit. I think I got him over to my side of the equation. But uh, the reason was the, the, the delay of insulin action when delivered through the skin. My pragmatic belief was perfection is the enemy of the good. I published a paper back in 2008 that said, you know what, I would love to have a fully automated closed loop system, but here's the problem. The sensors don't work well enough. Subcutaneous insulin has a huge lag. It's, It's a hard problem right now. And what we proposed at JDRF was, let's just take this in chunks. And in this paper I wrote, it's and, and this comes from very personal experience. My brother has what's called hypoglycemia and awareness. He's had over 100 seizures in his life due to um, hypoglycemia and it's cheated death a few times. And it's been a very, very stressful 
part of our growing up in the Kowalski house. I said, well, why would we, you know, of course I would love a closed loop system that's perfect, but what if we just turned off insulin when somebody was severely low? And it, it started this idea that you could take incremental steps that would be meaningful. And what we see today now is you have these hybrid closed loops that are transforming people's lives. The first step was a threshold suspend pump, a predictive uh, suspend pump. And I think similarly, what you'll see, um, and, and, and Doug, Dr. Melton can, can comment on this, is even in stem cell, what we see in the field is the companies going after certain patient populations, Im- people who are immunocompromised already for potential you know, uh, immunoprotection to the stem cells, and it'll happen in steps. But I guess the last thing I would say is, I've been on a CGM for 15 years. The bulk of people with diabetes around the globe aren't on C- CGMs, let alone AID systems. The, 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 unfortunately, the penetration into the market takes time. So I think there is a play in both spaces here. I would love to see Doug's work and the stem cell field obsolete my need for a pump. But even if we obsolete my need for a pump, I'm sure there are going to be other people where stem cell, the rollout will be slower. So, Yeah, no, I agree with you. I see these as parallel treatments. But in terms of answering Jorge's question about a time horizon, certainly the stem cell treatments are more than two or three years away but I believe less than 10 years away, significantly less. Maybe I just sort of set the stage for some of our listeners on where that stands. If we say that there are two big problems for autoimmune or insulin-dependent diabetes, there's the immune attack, as you said, Aaron, and the absence now of a sufficient number of functional beta cells. The fact is that I think is really a huge game changer is that it's now possible to make an unlimited number of functional beta cells and as it happens, alpha cells, which make the important counter-regulatory hormone glucagon. So that shifts the challenge now. It's no longer can you make the thing that would replace the pump and the monitor. It's where do you put it in the body and how do you get it to survive? And so, again, to just put things in two areas, one area is to put them in a device so they can't be eliminated by the immune system. And the other area is to use genetic modification, which people are hearing lots about with CRISPR and other things, to make the cells survive longer, either to make them last forever or at least make them somewhat opaque or difficult for the immune system to reject. A third area is to modify the host, that is the patient, um, by, by using, for example, T-regulatory cells so they wouldn't reject cells. Um, so I guess I would say there are three areas, but the two I'm most excited about are using stem cell-derived beta cells, either in a device or with genetic modification. So to get back to where that stands, Jorge, those approaches are now in clinical trials by two or three companies. The readouts will happen this year and next year. And as Aaron rightly said, there's not going to be like an aha moment where one approach is going to work immediately and everyone's going to fold up their shop and say, okay, that's the way to do it. There will be incremental steps, first into patients, that are, as Aaron said, hypoglycemic unaware, then in the patients who've had the disease for a longer time, I would guess, it'll be a while before it's going to go into young children. But there's never been a more exciting time for new ways of treating it. Another way to think of it is if you think about what stem cells are going to be used for, type 1 diabetes is sort of the poster child of what it could be used for because you have a single cell which is really defective. And you have a way of making it now. And so that's a a puzzle that can be solved. So it's interesting that both of you have outlined kind of maybe two ends of a therapeutic spectrum. You know, Aaron, you talked about there are just so many practical unmet needs, you know, in the day-to-day management of disease and the stratification based on, you know, empirical CGM trends, potentially, that they're, you know, potentially incremental, but still highly impactful technological solutions, let's call them, on one side. Doug, you're talking about potentially biological cures by replacing, you know, stem cell-derived beta cells, you know, to replace kind of the original the original patient's beta cells or potentially, again, long-term biological um, impact or cure with a T-reg cell therapy or something of that nature. What about in between for, you know, 
disease-modifying therapies, uh, small molecule therapies that help control the disease. Um, you know, if you look at the type 2 diabetes field, many would argue that SGLT2 inhibitors have been very, very impactful. Um, how, do you, how do you both think about that middle ground? And in particular, I'm curious how JDRF, for the founders in the room, working and, you know, scientists in the room working on maybe all across this spectrum, how does JDRF think about placing bets across this, you know, across all, all, all the areas? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And I love it. And while I'm a tremendous believer in stem cell, we have other horses in the race. So I'll just give you, uh, Vanita, a great example of this. And, 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 and one of the, um, kind of interesting things that hit the wire recently, JDRF, for example, has been focused on better insulins for a long time. Closed loop systems would be incredibly more powerful if we had super fast acting insulin. You know, the, the, the subcutaneous lag is so great compared to what the pancreas does. Um, we have to be cautious with our targets and, and it's a challenge. But kind of the really holy grail, when you think of a kind of an innovative maybe potentially the most innovative treatment option to me is glucose responsive insulin. And a, a while ago, we, the current head of our research department, Dr. Sanjay Duda, and I uh, in, uh, funded some work with a company called Smart Cells. There was a, a spin out of, of MIT and they had a really innovative approach to glucose responsive insulin. And for the listeners, what this would be just, again, I mentioned my brother and I were on Cow and pig insulin. Everybody, uh, many of you know that uh, you know if you're into molecular biology, we went to recombinant human insulin, then insulin analogs through uh, uh, genetic modifications of the insulin um, gene and, and manufacturing of those proteins. So, kind of the holy grail would be: what if you could make an insulin that only you know, reacts when your body needs it? It's glucose responsive. And recently, just within the last two or one month. Uh, one of our grants that started as a prize because we were trying to pull people in, not necessarily from diabetes, but from the from biochemistry and chemistry labs, uh, was spun out into a company called Protomer that was just acquired by Eli Lilly. Um, and, you know, innovation like that, like could you have a glucose-responsive insulin? Potential massive um, improvement in insulin chemistry and in uh, and, and, and kind of a dream for people with diabetes. So we are always looking at the landscape and we take what we call a target product profile approach. We think this is the next step, you know, glucose responsive or faster acting or a stem cell product that doesn't require immunosuppression. And then we try to solve the, the barriers uh, that stand in our way. And, and Doug is a great example of this. We're funding an amazing what we call center of excellence based up in New England. Doug's the principal investigator focused on gene editing of stem cells as an immunoprotective mechanism. We're always looking at potential game-changing, what we call life-changing breakthroughs. Question, do you also fund, for just for so everybody can learn here, um, innovation and translational research for intended for type 2 diabetes or laser-focused on type 1? Yeah, I mean, we look at technologies that can actually, there are um, platforms uh, that we've invested in that uh, started out not having applications for type 1 at all. Um, and then our um, managing directors approached the company and said, hey, you know, this makes sense to apply to autoimmunes and, and hey, let's start with type 1. Um, so, you know, I think going back to Aaron's opening comments about diabetes being one disease, I mean, diabetes affects beta cells in type one and type two. It affects the pancreas in type one and type two. Mm -hmm. it, um, you know, you end up with the risk for the same complications in type one and type two. And so, you know, these, these applications are broad for the disease and not just specifically for type one. They're looking to the future, Karen. One of the things I'm counting on from the JDRF, because I'm such an optimist, is when we have a cure with stem cells, that'll pose a really interesting challenge for the insurance companies. How much can you charge for a cure when they're accustomed to just paying out? I don't know what they calculate. Someone told me $30,000 a year for type 1 diabetic for the insulin and the pumps and everything. 
And I think we'll need the JDRF's expertise, which spans all the way from Congress to, you know, local chapters and helping insurance companies think about how are you going to pay for a cure? Taking a step back for a second, I love the optimism and the thinking ahead. Let's come back to the to the policy and payment questions in just a second. But Doug, would you be able to just outline for this group um, what the major tech challenges that have been solved in the pursuit of stem cell therapy are and, and which ones remain to get us to this within within 10 years milestone that you're seeing of of potentially pervasive cell therapy available as a cure to a large number of both type one and type two patients. That's a, that's a big, big dream. And I'd love to just spend a couple minutes on the actual technology and science. Both sure. I'm glad to do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to do that. Um, though by a disclaimer at the beginning, I'll tell you that I've never really been entirely accurate in these predictions about the future, but I can at <laughs> <Fair> least <enough. laughs> point the direction. So, I think a kind of watershed moment, as I said, was showing that one could take an embryonic or a pluripotent stem cell and turn it in a Petri dish into a fully functional beta cell. That's something that when I was an undergraduate, if someone had said that, it would have seemed like a kind of science fiction. But now you can make unlimited numbers of fully functional human cells, both beta cells and the glucagon-producing alpha cell. So to answer your question, what are the challenges to get that into people? Um, the two challenges, as I see, to start with are where would you put them? They wouldn't go back in the pancreas. They'll go somewhere else in the body. And how to get them to survive for a long time. We know in animals that they can survive for more than a couple of years. And so the question is, we don't know that in humans. And there are two approaches taken to it. One I usually describe as a kind of a tea bag where the cells are put inside the bag and then into the body. And this way, the immune system can't get in and attack and touch and kill the cells. But glucose and insulin are small molecules which can go across the membrane. This is more technically called encapsulation. And the JDRF has for years uh, convened a group of people focused on the problem of how could you prepare an immunoprotective encapsulation devices. And the companies I alluded to before both have their own encapsulation device. The one I know best now at Vertex has performed very well in large animals, and I'm hoping it'll soon be tested in humans. If you go, though, I like the, the fact, Benita, they use the word dream because I like to dream about what the ideal would be. The ideal would be that a diabetic would get an injection of cells, of naked cells, into their abdomen, let's say, and when those cells run out, when they poop out and aren't making enough insulin, they go into their doctor's office and she goes into the freezer and just gets a little package of cells and injects some more. Um, people may not realize that the total number of cells one needs is not very large. It's about the size of a pea. You know, it's a tiny thing. And so how to do it with naked cells requires genetic modification. So to get to your point about what are the challenges, I might just give you an idea of what sort of approaches people are taking. One is we're using lessons learned from cancer cells, which avoid immune rejection, and using, let's say, some of the tricks of genes that cancer cells express in order to express them in the beta cells. That wouldn't turn them into cancer cells. It would just give them this one blocking agent. The other is there's a lot of interest and excitement in the puzzle of what's called the maternal-fetal interface. And so in short form, that's the puzzle of since a baby has half of the genes of the father, why doesn't the mother reject the baby? There are lots of clues there about genes you might use in beta cells to prevent rejection. And then the third approach, which everyone would know about in a sense, are that the advances in modern molecular biology allow for what are called whole genomic screens to look for genes that could protect the cells. So those three areas of research are extremely active now, and I'm completely convinced that they're going to get hits. That is, there will be advances that will bring naked cells into patients soon. Whether they'll last for the lifetime of the patient, I don't know, but they certainly will extend their life. And Aaron and I kind of forgot to remind people that we know that um, if you take islets from cadavers and transplant them into patients, these islets do much better 
than any mechanical system. No combined glucose monitor and insulin pump performs as well as cadaveric islets, as they're called. And that's why, as you can tell, I'm so keen on what I like to call nature's solution. We're just putting the cells back that are missing in the patient. And those cells have evolved to read blood sugar every millisecond and just squirt out a tiny amount of insulin as needed. There's no bolus of insulin. Aaron will know how often a continuous glucose monitor reads sugars. I think it's every five minutes. A beta cell reads it every millisecond, a thousand times a second. That's a terrific outline of the of the work ongoing. Still some hard problems to solve and potentially multiple different approaches that could be successful. Yeah, and I would say speaking of hard problems, um, as we said at the outset, you know, some of the statistics uh, when it comes to to diabetes are pretty daunting, right? It, you know, one in seven adults now is um, you know, actively uh, diabetic, um, three quarters of the population, adult population in the United States is overweight or obese, which obviously doesn't bode well for what direction at least type two diabetes is likely to take in, in coming, you know, decades. Um, how do you guys think about one of the things that strikes me just listening to this conversation is each and every one of you has been personally touched by this, by this condition, by this disease. Um, I'd be curious just to get your take on, on how we deal with just the human challenges um, that, that this disease presents, uh, the, the, you know, the population. And at a very high level, I'd be curious to know, uh, is there any reason why we haven't yet declared war on diabetes in the way that we've declared war on cancer? I'm a, I'm a, this is Aaron. I'm going to jump right in because I this is something I'm passionate about. And it comes back to kind of my early comments at the beginning when I said I'm going to throw a grenade type one and type two, and that there's no, you know, that, that there's a, actually a continuum, you know, type two diabetes is so stigmatized in the United States and, and globally. And it, it, it's so misunderstood and incredibly unfairly. It's a genetic disease. Being overweight does not cause type two diabetes. This is a disease. And that, that alone has caused us so many challenges in you know the investment from our federal government in, in, in diabetes research and regulatory processes, um, we have done uh, a disservice to um, the therapeutic advancements by saying, "Hey, just get out there and walk a little bit; you'll be fine." Um, it's a disease, and it's unmasked by kind of now. The, the nature in which we live, which is much more sedentary and with many more calories available at a lower cost. So I, I think there, the one thing, Jorge, that, that I also feel passionately about that I think for many investors, many researchers, many physicians is misunderstood here is that diabetes is not just about hyperglycemia. Karen talked about you know, dosing insulin. Who doses a drug that could kill you in an hour without a physician's supervision multiple times a day? And think about that. And the psychosocial burden of living with diabetes, whether you're type 1 or type 2, is, is, is massive. And I think, you know, that kind of then takes me to your question, like, what is it going to take to drive some of these advancements forward? It's going to take a better appreciation from a broader uh, uh, swath of our population of the tremendous impact these diseases are having on, on uh, the individuals and then societally. So I'll just give you a very specific example. I spoke at a, a, a recent adcom for, uh, Doug mentioned, Provention Bio, which again is a, a company working on a preventative therapy called teplizumab, at least it's a disease-delaying therapy in type 1 diabetes, that we're super excited about can delay type one in, in, in the trials to date over three years. And at the adcom, there were a lot of physicians who essentially said, diabetes is just people, you know, we should be just using insulin more effectively. If people just took better care of themselves, we wouldn't need these things. And they come with more risk. And I saw the similar uh, type of kind of condescending tone when we brought uh, continuous glucose monitors uh, in, in front of um, some decision makers. Oh, why would you you know do this? It may be inaccurate. You should just be poking your fingers more. 
Um, we we have barriers that are pretty um, societal. It, it's a, an ignorance problem. It's a lack of data problem. And you can tell it gets me worked up as a person with diabetes because advancements are being slowed because of these barriers. And um, this is a disease that is managed primarily by patients. It's well said, yeah, and you remind me sometimes when I'm teaching at the medical school and the students kind of roll their eyes and think, well, as you said, you can inject insulin and test blood sugars. What's the big deal? I ask those that have young children at home to go home tonight with a sterile watered syringe and prick their baby's finger during the middle of the night four times and inject them with sterile water and then come back and tell me it's not such a big deal. And Jorge, such a great point. Just... And to those who say that type two diabetes is caused by lifestyle, point those you know those students and uh, and folks to the statistic that it's forty five percent heritable. You know, I think particularly for the innovators and investors here, the the interesting thing that Doug is doing that we've seen in AID and in many of my talks when I'm out, whether it's speaking to scientists, lay people, company people, regulators. As again, many people have just such a glucocentric mentality in diabetes. The part of the equation, and I often show a teeter totter, is the other side of the equation is life. Like, I don't want to be thinking about diabetes. I want to be out with my kids. I want to be running. I want to be working. Um, I want to be doing research. I want to be living life. And the Many of the advancements we've seen actually add burden on the shoulders of people. The beauty of stem cell, the potential for stem cell, what we've seen in a transformation with AID systems is it's not only driving glucose to a better place, but it's driving quality of life and some of these psychosocial aspects of diabetes that play a major role in the adoption of new therapies. Like I've never seen somebody wearing an insulin pump who doesn't have diabetes. <laughs> so you, you you choose to do these things because you get a value. But if you can imagine, if the value hits both sides of the equation, it's exponentially higher. And that's where the promise of stem cell and disease modification is so high because, gosh, it takes the burden off the shoulder of people with diabetes and places it in the, 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 the smarts of the cell. Um, uh, and, and I can't say enough about the importance of that. If you're investing in diabetes, you will fail if you don't take um, a, a, a perspective beyond glucose. I think a great example of that, Aaron, is um, the, uh, the Libre CGM that's made by Abbott that, um, you know, one of your portfolio companies levels is using for their metabolic health purposes. Um, but you know, it's something that is relatively cheap. It's easy to use. It's, um, intuitive in terms of, um, understanding the information that it's giving you. And, you know, the adoption is really high. So, you know, think about not only the science and the technology, but the person who's actually using it. So maybe then uh, transitioning, this has been a phenomenal conversation, by the way. Thank you all for um, such a rich conversation. Um, you know, Aaron, um, Dr. Nainstein, actually, um, Aaron's a physician at UCSF and is in a very interesting intersection between um, digital health um, and um, endocrinology and, and everything else that happens in chronic disease management at a very large academic center. So Aaron, I know you're jumping into this conversation, but I'm curious, we, we didn't talk as much on the digital side. We've talked a lot about CGM and closed loop systems, but curious, Aaron, what you see is on the cutting edge from a UCSF perspective here. And, and also if you have any questions, thoughts, feel free to add. Awesome, uh, great to be with you. Hi everybody. Um, so I think, I, you know, just building off what Aaron was talking about a minute ago with the mental burden of living with type 1 diabetes, I think we're in an incredibly exciting moment. I've started to see in my practice over the last couple of years as we have people on closed-loop insulin delivery, a complete shift in the kinds of conversations that I'm able to have with people as their diabetes clinician to a place where we've spent years focusing on how to improve their blood sugar control, how to improve time and range. And all of a sudden, as they're seeing improved time and range with 
the aid of the automated insulin delivery, we're sitting down. I had a patient last week tell me, we just sat down and talked for 30 minutes and you didn't mention diabetes once. And I'm seeing that more and more in our uh, in, in people working with people with type 1 diabetes who are on closed loop insulin delivery. And so I think we're in a really magical moment where the technology for type 1 diabetes is getting better and better. And I think I'm, I'm sure this came up earlier in the conversation. The huge opportunity and gap is in accessibility to that technology due to cost and insurance coverage. Um, for the many, many, many people in this country who don't currently have access to it. So I think that's one really exciting area is this is a huge shift in the burden of managing diabetes for people with, with type 1, and it's been very exciting. On the broader digital health spectrum, I think where we are still um, seeing a huge opportunity is in integrating all the different components of the ecosystem together. So as we have continuous glucose monitoring, as we have more and more companies, um, some in, in your portfolio and outside who are doing diabetes coaching, who are doing diabetes management, and we have the traditional uh, care delivery system, making it easy for the people with diabetes and their health information to actually flow across all of the different care settings and for all of the different components of their care to work together. I think that's a, a great area of opportunity over the coming year or two and in, in a place that I think is going to be um, a really important area of focus for us. Well, this has been a really um, fascinating discussion covering covering a very um, wide spectrum of technological, biological, cellular, you know, promising and, and hugely impactful potential solutions to the diabetes crisis that, that Jorge outlined. Maybe just for closing thoughts, it'd be great to just do a quick round the horn and ask you all to summarize, um, you know, if you could snap your fingers and have your dreams fulfilled, um, to use that word again, Doug, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years, you know, where, where are you, um, What's what's the one thing that you wish is sort of radically different about how our society collectively approaches diabetes? We'll just do a quick fire round. So, Karen, start with you. For me, the the big thing around diabetes in general is the issue that that Aaron brought up of stigma. And you know, if you say that, um, yeah, you've got. Um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. No one says, "Oh, it's your fault." They say, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Um, you know, diabetes should be the same way. Um, it's a disease. It's not your fault. There's, as you said, Vanita, a huge genetic component. And if we could instead redirect the conversation to figuring out how we are going to deal with this, I mean, we're already at epidemic levels. We have almost a similar number of people who are pre-diabetic and don't know they are pre-diabetic. Um, and I always say, you know, pre-diabetes really isn't a category because you still have, um, you still are, are not at normal glycemic levels. Um, so, so we've got a, a, this time bomb that's just, it's going to explode in a much bigger way than we ever imagined. Um, so, so if we could just shift that discussion, I think that would make a world of difference. Um, you know, if I could snap my fingers and change the way that, um, you know, people with type one are living, you know, obviously it would be a case where, you know, no one has to think on a minute by minute basis about their disease and how that's going to impact what they do next, whether it's taking an exam, whether it's speaking, whether it's going for a run, um, you know, whether it's the time they need to go to bed. Um, if they have all their supplies, if they want to go out to dinner um, and to be able to celebrate, you know, life milestones of getting your first apartment, living alone, graduating, having children. Um, these are all things that we should be celebrating. And instead, people with type one view it with with dread because it means that you have to plan so much and the risks are so much greater. So well said. We'll go to you, Doug. Um. Let me think what I could say. I, I kind of go back to 
I guess, my own uh, simple view of how to think about the problem. Prevention involves education for type 2, probably not so much for type 1, but it's a very difficult problem. As you've said and others, it's, first of all, multigenic, and we're not quite close to even curing single genetic diseases as yet. And it's not only multigenic, there's unknown environmental factors. And I don't just mean food. There's something else that tips people into type 1. So prevention, I think, is going to be a very high hill to climb. It may not happen in the next 10 or 20 years. On the other hand, I'm eternally optimistic because of all of the advances in biomedicine I've seen in my lifetime, that a focus on cells as a natural cure can actually cure people, give a functional cure to people that have type 1. And while I'm saddened when I hear almost weekly or monthly here in the Boston area of a family that contacts me because their young child has type 1, I'm really very optimistic. I don't know of any reason we cannot cure that disease. So I'm very hopeful about the future. Thank you, Doug. And Aaron? Well, I guess, uh, you know, Doug and I were intended to debate. And I guess, while I appreciate Doug's point that preventing type 1 will be hard, we do know that type 1 has a strong genetic component. My kids are at a higher risk than the general population, and I have five siblings who also have kids. Um, we need to stomp the, this disease out in the next generation and create uh, preventative therapies. And I, uh, I, I don't think we can sleep until we get there. The beauty, as, as Karen alluded to, and is we have multiple smart people working on this problem, and we're looking to smart folks like the listeners today to, to contribute and help us get there sooner. Well, one thing's for sure, it's certainly going to require that future vision of all, that all of you articulated is going to require a lot of collaboration between you know, basic research, translational work, clinicians, and, um, you know, financing and policy infrastructure. So I hope we continue to have the opportunity to collaborate. And um, thank you all so much for spending the past hour with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank Fun you, discussion. Everyone. Thanks, guys.